What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and today we're going to be interviewing Lisa Churgan. Now, Lisa has cut some amazing projects. One of my favorite is Gattaca, and of course, as you'll find out as we get into this, one of my favorite that she started on as an assistant is The Warriors. So, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to go through a bit of her career and explore the various projects she's worked on. One of the things I do need to warn you about is usually I really cut up these interviews, uh, but we became very conversational in this process. So I've left this interview a little looser in my cutting style, uh, just because we tend to flow. So I'll mention things that I've worked on, or I might talk about something, and that sort of spurs on another part of the conversation. So it is a little looser than usual for us. One of the reasons I'm interviewing Lisa right now is that the American Cinema Editors are putting on Edit Fest. And if you haven't already, you got to go get your tickets. You can get your tickets at AmericanCinemaEditors.com. And of course, Lisa will be there on one of the panels talking. But with all that said, here's my interview with Lisa. I'd love to hear how you got started in film and particularly how you moved into film editing. I was an English major in college. I went to Overland College and I ended up, it's a small, very intense, really academic school. So I went to, I sort of took my junior year abroad in New York and I lived in an apartment. I had a job. I went to NYU and it was and my brother-in-law went to NYU Film School, and he used my apartment as a location for one of his student films. And that was the first time I had an opportunity to actually see what sort of behind the camera. And it really fascinated me. And so Oberlin didn't actually have any film, practical film courses. They were just critical theory courses. So when I went back to Oberlin for my senior year, I got involved in theater and just sort of working behind the scenes in stage managing and lighting design and stuff like that. And when I graduated from college, I'm from New Jersey. So I went to New York. That was sort of the logical thing. And through a friend of the family, I got a job as a secretary in a, a receptionist secretary in a documentary company. Because by then, I knew that I probably wanted to pursue something in film just from that little bit that I had. I was a script supervisor on another one of my brother-in-law's films. He actually allowed me to do that. So I'm one of his student films, and it was just, you know, when you get the bug, you just sort of get the bug. And I just started devouring films, uh, going to revival houses in New York City. And I, I answered the phone in the editing room at the documentary company because that's all they had there. I mean, I thought, of course, that I wanted to work on the set because when you first get interested in film, that's generally what you think. Oh, I, you, you don't really know about editing. You say, oh, camera or something like that. And in those days, it was like, okay, I really am only most interested in camera, but those cameras were really heavy, you know, in terms of those 35 millimeter cameras. And so you had to, and you had to carry them. These are, that's when an AC did. 
But so I answered the phone in the editing room, uh, which promptly, it didn't promptly, after a while it got me fired, (laughs) but I had qualified for unemployment because it was a 20-week period. And so then I was able to do the thing that everybody has to do, which is work for free, unfortunately. Being (laughs) an ex-president of the union uh, and on the board, it's a terrible thing to say, but unfortunately... You have to be able to gain skills in order to be paid for those skills. And the only way that generally the only way you can gain those skills is either going to film school or and that doesn't even actually prepare you for working in the real world. So I did that. And Susan Morse, otherwise known as Sandy, was a friend of my brother-in-law's from film school, and she had actually left the graduate program at NYU. I think she did two years and then she realized that she really wanted to do film editing and she was working for Ralph Rosenblum by this point. I think she had already done Annie Hall and, uh, and she, and Ralph was very encouraging of people to cut as soon as they really felt that that's what they wanted to do. And so he encouraged her to do that and he helped get her a job working on this 10,000 documentary about Westchester County. And I had already been volunteering for free for Sandy, putting away trims. And so she hired me for $80 a week. She was making, I think, $300 a week. So she gave me $80 a week to be her assistant. And I was, I had a really cheap apartment in New York and a friend of mine was sharing my studio apartment. So it was like the perfect, whatever you call it, there's a (laughs) a confluence of everything. So I had the opportunity, I could afford to pay my rent and work on this documentary. It was 16 millimeter and we were working at, it was called Trans Audio in New York on top of Studio 54. It was pretty funny. And Dee Dee Allen was cutting, I think she was cutting the whiz at that time on the seventh floor. Dee Dee kind of owned the seventh floor. So I would get in the elevator every once in a while with Dee Dee Allen. You know, it was like, here I was. I was 22 years old. I was like, oh, my God, that's Dee Dee Allen. I might have been 23 at the time. And so she taught me some basic skills. And I sort of a funny aside story. I'll tell you, they there were a bunch of editors. You know, obviously, it was filled with editors. And I was... I was friendly, you know, I just sort of said hi to people and they knew I was working on this little thing and they invited me one day to play softball with them. So I got to meet a bunch of New York editors and assistants and stuff like that. And as a result, I did get offered a job working on Kramer versus Kramer, but this is sort of an aside. So Sandy got a job working on the Warriors. David Holden, who really had been a, uh, he was from California and was coming to New York to work on location. And he got Sandy's name as an assistant, but they were shooting a lot of film and Sandy got bumped up to being an editor, a second editor almost right away. And the other, the second assistant on that film was somebody who had a union card in New York and LA, which was highly unusual at that time. It was next to impossible to get into the LA union. And Phyllis Altenhouse, she didn't stay in editing, but she knew Frank Marshall. And so they, they really knew that they needed somebody to 
be able to go from one place to the next in terms of locations. So Sandy then offered me the job as an apprentice. When she got bumped up, they knew they needed more help. So it was, it was actually just the second week. So here I was, I mean, talk about a meteoric rise. <laughs> I was working for free. Then I was getting paid $80 a week. And then I got paid, I think it was like $190 a week. You know, here it was, I was 22, 23 years old. And it was easy to get into the union. You just had to work 30 days and then you would pay your initiation thing and dues and that was it. And the thing that happened was that it was a chem show, which people in New York didn't, they worked on steam Becks for documentaries, but everybody in New York edited on a movieola. And so as a result, the way that the editing room got organized, and this is not to take anything away from Sandy because she had just worked on features for Ralph and didn't know the California way of organizing film. So we did this really cockamamie way of doing things. And when you work on a, on a chem show, you have to, they shoot the dailies one way and then you have to break down your chem rolls and re, your daily rolls and reorganize them into chem rolls so that it makes sense for the editor. And there used to be an, a weird old way of coding. It was AA1000 and you'd go through this and then you'd go AB. So it was not, it was before Amoy and you couldn't put C numbers on it and everything like that. But the way that you should do it for a chem is that you sync your dailies, you break everything down, you reorganize it into chemicals, and then you code it. So everything on one roll of film has the same code number regardless, so that when you reconstitute and you put everything back into the roll, you know where it goes. <laughs> we didn't do that. We, we sunk the dailies, coded them, and then this was, the, this was just a really funny thing. Uh, Sandy was busy cutting, so David went to Phyllis, because she was the second assistant, and said, can you break these down and organize them into chem rolls, you know, so that I know to organize them for me. And Phyllis was not really, she really didn't want, she had just sort of fallen into film and she didn't really want to take the responsibility. So she said, I don't know how you're going to want to do that. Here I am. I'm like a young kid. And I was like, so he looked at me and he said, okay, you do it. And I went, okay. I actually didn't even know what a line script was. I didn't understand exactly how to use it. So baptism by fire, I got to make every, I mean, every mistake got made in terms of the way that we, or the film was organized. It should have been, as I say, coded differently. So I organized the film and that was fine because I figured out how he wanted it and everything like that. But as a result of this really crazy coding system, I had to make these logs and I was the only one who had all the information in my head about how the film was organized. So if anybody needed anything, they had to come to me. So as a result of that, we were on a really intense schedule. We were trying to beat this film called The Wanderers at that point. And in those days, films used to have like a six-month shelf life. You'd finish it six months so that they would do long lead press, whatever. We were going to finish it, and it was going to get released, which was an odd thing. And we did things like they daylighted the film every day because they were shooting at night. 
And I actually just went to a screening recently, the 39 years later, at the Arrow Theater in Los Angeles. They had a screening of the Warriors, and Walter was there. And um, the place was packed. It was just amazing. People are screaming, laughing, clapping, hooting, hollering, reciting all the dialogue, including me. It was just people dressed in the... In costume, it was very, very funny. Who knew we were working on a classic? But at a certain point, they brought in another editor from California. And when I showed him this really crazy way of organizing things, he went to David and said, who's coming to California with us? You know, and David said, Phyllis. And Freeman said, not Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally, this was the first morning. (laughs) By 10 o'clock that first morning, he said, not Lisa. And so he like hounded David. He was like, not Lisa, not Lisa for like weeks. And then because of going to this baseball game and meeting these other editors, I got offered a job as an apprentice on Kramer versus Kramer. And I went to David, my editor on Warriors. And I said, I was offered this job. So, you know, and and he like flipped out because he realized that I was, they were not going to be able to function without me actually. Uh, I was essential. So he went to the producers and said, I have to bring Lisa to California. (laughs) (laughs) So they brought me to California. And by this point, we had done a cross-reference system so that because we were going to end up having three editors, the third editor on the movie. So it was Freeman Davies. David Holden was the first. Freeman Davies and then Billy Weber, who oddly enough had just finished Days of Heaven. And this was a really big change for him from Terrence Malick to Walter Hill. But... Paul Haver, there was a big union thing. You were supposed to get a standby and they didn't want to pay for that. So Paul Hager called me into his office, Mr. Bully, and said, uh, you have to promise not to try to get into the union, uh, which I did not do. I just sort of looked at him. And my he now had become my friend, Freeman, called the union religiously until the availability list was basically down to nothing. And I was able to get into the LA union, which was a miracle. And my editor, David Holden was friends with Verna Fields and Verna had, um, her kids had moved out of the house and she, I met her a couple times cause she would come to New York. She was an executive at Universal by that point. And she said to me, you know, if you need a place to stay when you get to LA, you're more than welcome to stay in my back room, you know, one of her kids' rooms. So here I was, <laughs> I went to California, I moved into Verna Fields house and my next job was I got a job as an assistant on Raging Bull because uh, Thelma, it was her first job with Marty and she didn't know any assistants. So I did that for the boxing sequences. And I was, I was kind of like a duck to water. That's what I say. You know, some people really take to the editing room and some people don't. There are certain people when they talk to me about, oh, I really want to go into editing. I've actually said to certain people, no, you don't, (laughs) you know, very kindly, but you know that they would just die in the editing room. They don't have that. And I also say if the Where's Waldo books had been around when I was a kid, you know, I would have been fascinated by the Where's Waldo books. And so I, uh, I was an assistant for a number of years, I did take a break and went to business school, got my MBA at Columbia. 
and uh, then came back because I was trying to figure out, did I really want to do that or did I maybe want to go into producing? And so I wanted to gain some skills and kind of because I had just really gone into editing and I kind of wanted a little little break. But I came back and I worked for an accountant on a movie and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And my friend was working on mask and we still had the group system then. And he needed a group. They needed a group one because the editor was not a group one. So, I mean, this old antiquated thing of the union kind of ended up working in my, to my advantage in certain ways. So I went back to editing just to make money to work on the movie mask and again, it was just like, okay, this is obviously where I'm supposed to be. Um, it was a crazy Peter Bogdanovich was, you know, just a little nuts. And we worked ridiculous hours and schlepped film to his house and worked until three o'clock in the morning and carding and doing it. But it didn't matter. I loved it. And I was so I and my my real turning point was when I finally got to work for Carol Littleton in terms of just being I mean I got to work on as I say the Warriors was uh, as I say whoever knew and Walter is a wonderful filmmaker and that was that was great and I worked on a couple of John Landis movies you know big comedies stuff like that and then I got to work with Carol and that was really when my film school started and um, I uh I remember very specifically, she would cut with her door open and assistants used to listen to the radio a lot. Now, I guess they listened to you because we had such repetitive, you had to log film, you had to make boxes, you had to reconstitute (laughs) sound effects, but we'd listen to the radio. But I just actually stopped listening to the radio and I would just listen to Carol cut and she would bring me into her room uh, say, you know, ask me, she always did the thing of have us come in and comment on scenes so that you learn a vocabulary. The other thing that I feel very badly about for um, for young people today uh, is that they don't get to sit and watch dailies. I had the opportunity to go to a lab, sit in a dark room, hear everybody on the Warriors. Uh, I mean, I took the notes. I literally would sit next to the director and the editor and listen to what they had to say, I mean, uh, and write down everything that was. uh, And as time goes on and you're sitting there, you start to form opinions. I mean, we didn't do 20 takes of something on film, so we had... Uh, and even if you just did flex and looked at stuff, it was a thing of viewing and forming opinions and figuring out why, especially hearing when the director would say what they liked or versus the editor. And just, you know, it's, it's something that people don't get to do mm-hmm. for the most part today because we don't have dailies. How do we fix that? then because like i mean sorry to interrupt i i'm just wondering because like i hear that a lot and it feels i feel badly for those starting out now because they don't get that well they have to do it themselves they have to um you know i mean when you are an assistant and you have an avid you have that stuff available to you so you can you know you you can watch the dailies yourself i mean if you're an assistant and uh, my assistants have to go through and a lot of, they do keep rollings. They, you know, they start again, things like that. 
So they have to go through and mark where things are so that I know over the course of the movie, okay, I've got three takes in this, you know, in this one clip. So, oh, it's, uh, so they have an opportunity to do it, but it's not the same way we did it. You know, I mean, as I say, we'd have an hour. If you had an hour of film, <laughs> you know, now you get five hours of film. It's like, it's 10 hours of film. It's crazy because they just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. It's the same way when people say, oh, my God, it's so amazing to be able to work electronically because you can do all sorts of different versions. And that's not really what it is, because how many realistic versions can you make of something? You get to store certain things. You get to Dee Dee Allen. um, You've probably heard she used to dupe everything. She would do a cut and then she would dupe it hers. She had an army of assistants who would mark things up so that she always had a record. So it was like, oh, okay, I like that cut. So I'm going to go back to that. Now we can, you know, we can keep little snippets. So this is what this is. And a lot of times when I'm cutting, I do something and I go down a rabbit hole and then I want to keep it because I want to be able to show the director, well, that actually doesn't work as much as showing that something does work so that when they say, oh, how about if we do this? Oh, yeah, you know, I tried that. Now let me show you why it doesn't work. But the thing is, is that assistants, well, I believe in letting my assistants cut. So, uh, and that was a very difficult thing to do when you were working on film. First of all, they can stay late if they want and do it then. But also for them to be able to experiment, remember splices? That was like (laughs) really like, you know, how many reprints can you order for allowing your assistant to cut? So there's a lot of menial labor that has been taken out of editing. So for the assistants, there is that advantage. The disadvantage is that there's not that part of the process. Now, the thing that was interesting is that a couple times I did work on a movieola show, maybe once or twice, and it's unbelievable as an assistant, the editor does work with an assistant in the room then. And the assistant has to anticipate, like I have to sit there and think, okay, they're in the wide shot. So I think they're going to want to go to this character next and have to go and find that shot and be ready to do it. And when they've all cut something, you have to be able to roll down and find the the exact piece of film that's going to go there if they want to extend it. You know, I mean, you're like a well-oiled machine when you are working on a movie also. So assistants had a real opportunity to be very, very much a part of the creative process then. Um, So, and I, as an editor, I talk about the movie a lot with my assistants. We show it a lot of times. They don't get to necessarily sit there when the director and I are screening the film or, but sometimes if the director is open to it, I allow it, you know, and I encourage it. And then we talk about it. We talk about them. I, I talk about the movie a lot. My poor husband has to listen to it. So he has to read the script so that at least he kind of knows what I'm talking about. Because, well, I'm, I'm doing this experiment. This is kind of working. This is not working. And he kind of knows what I'm talking about. He, he was a general contractor. He's retired now. But it was so because it's very much a part of. I want to include everybody in the process as much as possible. Well, and I feel like you would work through, because w- what's happened with me is I'll, I'll do the same thing as I'll talk about it a lot, but a lot of times it's me just working through it in my head almost. And then getting feedback from someone, someone's like, I don't, I don't get that. And you're like, why, why isn't it working? And it starts sort of, 
percolating ideas in your head. I had a conversation with my assistant the other day and he was saying, yeah, but in the script, I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, <laughs> <laughs> forget the script. Oh, he was like, I was thinking it was going to be this. I said, no, respond to what you're seeing in front of you. Is that working? Is that not working? Because we're making it into something else. Now, I have to say, my wife and I love the Warriors. <laughs> so <laughs> we were very excited when she, I literally I told her just before she took my daughter out so we could so I could call you. And she was just like, make sure sh- make sure she tells you something about the Warriors. This movie shouldn't work. Like, if you came to me and pitched me the oh, idea of, I know. like, gangs who are different, you know, like the baseball gang, the roller, like, I'm like, I'd be like, The baseball crazy. furies. Yeah. Those are the baseball furies. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then, but it's so good. It's just, you're sort of, gra- you're connected to it through the story, essentially. Like, we have to get to here. Also, there is, so it's based on a book about <laughs> lost young people in New York. And I actually have never read the book. But the thing was, uh, when I saw it this time, and of course, I have a perspective from, you know, being much older, the like, Deborah von Volkenberg, who played Mercy, when she says to Swan, they're in the subway track, and she says to him, she's trying to get him to, you know, like kiss her and jump her and everything. And he doesn't want to do it. She's going, come on. And then she starts making fun of him and he goes, don't you have anything else? And she goes, well, I don't know. Look at these women with their bellies hanging out. I don't want to be like that. So Friday nights are good and Saturday nights are better. And you just, your heart goes out to her because just the casting of her was really good because she was so raw looking and beautiful in this very ethnic, kind of way and and the the cookie cutter of all the different uh people even the kid rembrandt who is the he's the guy who with the paint cans and stuff like that it worked the baby kid and the uh the tough girls and so there was a little bit of little bit of everything, and uh, James Remar was actually at the screening. Ajax, yeah, of course, the only real actor in the bunch. Yeah, but it, it all—it's so fascinating that it, it just like the casting's great. Everything just sort of—it's one of those sort of yeah. lightning in a bottle just caught it. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm saying, being at that screening, uh, I was just—I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked because I, I certainly hadn't seen it on the screen since 1978. I did see it came out in 79, so I probably saw it then. And in New York, it was pulled after two weeks because of gang violence. Two people were killed after seeing it. But in other parts of the country, it it continued to play. And then I did see the anniversary edition where Walter got to put all those extra graphics in, which I did not like. And most people, especially if you grew up were there when it came out, they like the original one without the the added the added stuff. So yeah, who you know, who knew? how do you how do you know that something is going to reach people in a you know, Little Miss Sunshine, who knew that that was gonna reach that many uh people? seems like it wouldn't it shouldn't work but it does on many many levels i do want to know because you mentioned it going through you were taking notes for the director and the and the producer for 
or in the editors uh, for the the dailies for, so, the, for warriors yeah but for dailies. but i'm wondering mm-hmm. as an editor what do you look for in performances because as some of the stuff i've seen you that you've cut is just phenomenal um so oh, what do you, thank you what do you look for the i mean you've heard it many times before you work within your own rhythm that's whatever that happens to be and it's either a rhythm that works for other people or not. And you're looking for the essence of truth. That's um, Toby Maguire. I guess he actually, <laughs> he called and left a message when I was nominated for Cider House Rules. He called and left a message on my answering machine and said, thank you for making people believe I'm a good actor. And um, Miramax, while we were shooting Cider House, Miramax was giving Toby, Lassa, Richard Gladstein, everybody, Toby's agents, they were giving, like, they were saying, this is not good. He's not acting. He's not doing enough. There's just not enough there. And when we showed the movie the first time to Richard Gladstein, he actually turned to me and said, where did you find this stuff? And it's what I respond to, what I'm looking for in the arc of a scene, I don't think it out. I'm not an intellectual editor at all. I go cut by cut. Okay, the hardest part is how do you start the scene? That's the one that's always like, okay, <laughs> how am I going to get into this? What do I want to see first? And then everything starts leading you one cut to the next. And um, a lot of times now on the Avid, I'll start, depending on how good the script supervisor is and their notes, they will say this take was the director's favorite. And because I don't get to watch dailies with the director this time, they were in Cincinnati and I was in LA. So the script supervisor was our conduit. And so I will kind of look at stuff. I don't necessarily, a lot of times also because there's so much material, I won't initially look at everything. I'll kind of scroll through and get a sense of what I have okay, I have wide shots, I have close-ups, I have over-the-shoulders, I have this kind of move, I have that. And I'll start putting stuff together, and then I will start refining in terms of performances, and I will change takes until I'm finally at the one where, okay, this is the one that really means the most to me. Or else something that happens is that you do look at something and you go, okay, I have to structure the whole scene around this and get to that line so that it just is the crystallization of what's going on in this scene. And so it's what speaks to me emotionally. That's the only way I can say it. It's like, how long do you hang on a cut? Yeah, it's always difficult to, to make that decision, right? Because you're trying to engage the audience. And... Well, you can't. I am trying to engage my, I'm trying to engage for me. And therefore, I'm playing the part of the audience, but I'm not. I mean, in comedy, sometimes you have to do it differently because if it's really funny, you have to know that they will laugh. And even though they say don't account for that, but then when you go and you preview and they, nobody can hear anything, it's like, okay, I really have to open up that cut. But in drama, it's different. It's, it's really what works for you. And why are you cutting? Are you, yeah. you know, sometimes cuts are just 
because you have to get out of a shot because the actor flubs the line there. So you have to go to something else to get to something else. But then other times, obviously, you're cutting to really for emphasis on that particular thing. They're transport. I call them there's transportation music. I just need things to help get me from one scene to the next. Right now, my director for, on Pete's Dragon we didn't cut with music. The first month that we were working, we were working totally without any temp music. Whereas before, obviously, I would, first time I showed something to the director, I had a complete score. And I have to say, it's very liberating not having music. It's much harder because it's really just the force of the film and your internal rhythms. But I have a music editor friend, a couple of them. They say I cut in four, four times. So oh, yeah. when we end up putting music on, it's, it's, it seems to fall into place. So <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. If you're following that sort of cut, cut to cut approach, because one of the things like you cut pitch perfect, if I'm not mistaken, because yes. there's on your IMDb, for some reason, it says uncredited in one section and then it says credited in another. You want to know what it is? That has to do with the cups video. Okay. So what happened was on the cups video, and I tried to get this corrected. I did not cut the, <laughs> Jason went with Anna and went and they did this thing. And it, he was, it had two cuts in it, literally. He, uh, but yeah, so. Well, what I was going to ask is, because I've only worked on one musical and it was a short. And one of the issues we sort of encountered was, if something wasn't working in a in a music scene, you're sort of locked off by the sync, right? Because you have to sync it to the playback track. Yeah. So how do you tackle mm-hmm. situations like that in something like in Pitch Perfect where um, you've got this locked time and you want to make changes, but you you can't really shift as much? The thing about that was that, remember, there was a lot of dancing. So there was a lot of cutaways and stuff like that. When you're cutting something that's as straightforward as, especially with the Bellas, with the the guys, I want to say the Troubles, but I can't remember yeah. what they were called. Here Comes Trouble, um, maybe. They had so much dancing and movement, you could get away with a lot of stuff. Like the scene in the pool when they're doing just straight singing, you have to really hope that everybody's in sync, because of course this is playback, that they're <laughs> that they're doing a good job. And if something is not working, you can't use it because if it doesn't, if it doesn't sync up, you're just going to be totally pulled. At least me, I'm going to be pulled out of it. And my music editor and I, we would call Angie Rubin. We would have these sync parties. She would come in and we would sit in front of the TV and, and sort of go, okay, one frame this way, one frame that way, one frame this way, one frame that way. And then she in a pro in pro tools, she could do a little rate change and manipulation. So if it needed to be a half a frame or something like that, there's a lot of technical moving around of kinds of things because of that. But the, uh, I mean, oddly enough, it was live recording. Uh, We did do some playback stuff, but Bob Roberts (laughs) was a musical. I had like seven musical numbers uh but they were but that was live recording all that stuff was pretty much live so which makes it kind of easier and uh, makes it harder for the people at the end but you have uh there's a good there's a good structure to it and you know music especially stuff like in pitch perfect where stuff is so percussive it makes things easier and just 
more uh, interesting. <laughs> it's sometimes easier. Yeah. It's like people say action. I mean, I'm, action is not my most favorite thing to get. I think sometimes I get um, like I love action movies, but the actual act of cutting it, it's not my most favorite thing. And it's not the thing that I'm best at. I'm much better at dialogue movies and dramas, not big raucous comedies. But what I say, dramedies that really are done of certain amount of those romantic comedies are fun. The Ugly Truth. I had a lot of fun working on that. We got a 92 in our preview, but the editing got a 94 and I got to <laughs> save the piece of paper. I was yeah. just like, oh, my God, it's the worst part of a preview when they're sitting there and they grade you. And I got to watch Amy Pascal jumping up and down with joy from some of the silly humor about how the audience exploded in laughter from some of these silly things. So that, you know, that kind of stuff is really fun when you can make people laugh. I've made people cry more than anything. It wasn't <laughs> until I, I remember finally saying, Oh, somebody didn't die in this movie. Like in house of sand and fog, my husband said, how was your day, honey? Well, I, I shot a kid. I uh, poisoned a mom and I suffocated a man. <laughs> of, uh, that, that was my day today. Um, Dead Man Walking, we spent a lot of time on the, I mean, I had got the rape murder execution sequence. And originally the execution wasn't really exactly part of it. And it was a very, very delicate balance because what he did was heinous, but what we do to death penalty. No, I mean, I don't believe anybody has the right to kill anybody else, including the government. Like, hands down, nobody has the right to kill anybody. So, yes, I understand why people want revenge and things like that, but you still don't have the right to kill anybody. So it was really hard, and we worked on that a lot and I remember being in a very bad mood at certain times and by Friday and some of those weeks just being so wrung out that I just wanted to go and not move or, or go and watch uh, it's that famous thing from Preston Sturgis in Sullivan's Travels you know it's like he wants to do deep dark drama and then he ends up in a in a work camp and he sees what comedies do, you know, you want to, you want to be able to do that. But it's, uh, as editors are want to say, we want to work on a lot of different things. Well, and you've actually, you've worked on what's amazing about your career is that when I went through your resume, it's basically everything from sci-fi to drama to comedies. How, cause I know a lot of young editors who are like, I want to be open and cut whatever comes on my way. But a lot of editors get pigeonheld into, oh, you're the you're the action guy, or you're the, you're the oh, absolutely, and oh, how absolutely. You, how did well? I guess how did you keep yourself from falling into that? Um, it's luck of the draw. Uh, I did reality bites for Jersey Films, and uh, they produced Gattaca, <laughs> so I got to do Gattaca. I did Tim for. Um, Tim Robbins, he was, I'm trying to remember, oh, uh, a friend of mine, he waited and waited to hire his editor. And I had 
not my agent, but his assistant was just pestering them. Oh, you really should talk to Lisa, really should talk to Lisa. And Tim, first time director, he didn't really know what he was looking for. We had a great phone conversation. Uh, We didn't actually meet in person. So we had a great time. So then we did Bob Roberts, which was a musical and uh, this mockumentary and very ahead of its time in that it was all handheld which was not really done then except for documentaries. And we did things like cross the line and I had to intercut the whole movie because it was way too long. And so I just got this incredible opportunity. And then Tim went ahead and did something amazing like Dead Man Walking. And I got Cider House rules because this was, they were Lassa and his editor, regular editor, Andy Munchie, and they were supposed to do a movie and it fell through. So Andy took the Night Shyamalan movie. uh, Sixth Sense. Yes. So he took that. So he wasn't available. And Lassa's producer said, oh, uh, Tim Robbins is a New York director. So his editor is probably a, uh, you know, New York. They just assumed I was a New York editor. So I got called for an interview for that. It's like, because they knew they needed a New York editor. So it was like, I wasn't a New York editor, but I moved to New York to do (laughs) Cider House. And um, then I got to work a couple of films. That was a Miramax movie. So then I did a number of Miramax, like doctor jobs. I was, it was a combination of Miramax and I knew Sally Minky. I got to do this really silly comedy, Waking Up in Reno. And then there was another Miramax movie and... I think Moonlight Mile, which was uh, Brad Silberling, again, dark drama. So yeah, because in the 90s, I did a bunch of like a lot of dark, dark dramas. That was uh, a lot of ones that they don't make as many anymore of those, or at least they make them either for no money. or for... I'm trying to that was a tough one to be able to be able to get back into comedy. I worked with Lakeshore. Because Mark Pellington, who I find is a very interesting director, and then Lakeshore, they were doing The Ugly Truth, and they, as producers, had a lot of power over who their editors were. So it was, you know, having a relationship with the producer. Because the, the thing that young editors need to know is, yes, it's great to make relationships with directors, but producers are as important to make relationships with because they either have their hands in more, they know more people or you know, they make more movies. Sometimes they're involved in a lot of other things. So as a result of having been able to do that, I did this movie priest because, and this was another wonderful thing. I really wanted to get that visual effects bugaboo off my back where somebody couldn't say to me, well, you've never done a visual effects movie. And the thing about that film is that the director came from visual effects. He had owned a visual effects company. And so he didn't need an editor who knew a lot about visual effects. He needed somebody who knew a lot about story. And that's what he was interested in finding. So I worked at Screen Gems, which generally the budgets are a little less and, you know, they pay less money. But it's like, fine, I'll do it because... I want to be able to ask every dumb question under the sun. And I could, it was just so much fun. We ended up oddly enough, having literally one of the best visual effects editors in the business and my director. So it just made everything really easy so that by the time Pete's dragon came around, 
I mean, obviously, in today's world, you have lots of visual effects in all your movies because uh, um, the ugly truth, it was the uh, final thing was shot in a balloon, so you know, which was done on stage and all green screen. So, yes, that. But Pete's Dragon was a big visual effects movie with a lot of set pieces, you know, a lot of visual effects sequences. So there wasn't any question because I had done Priest. So I was very lucky in that I had done Priest. So I didn't, I had that monkey off my back. Now, you've been very generous with your time. So I have one last question I'd like to ask all the editors I interview. And that is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, do I have to pick one? No, you can give me a couple (laughs) if need be. Oh, Okay, Sound of Music, uh, The Godfather, the first one probably more than the second one, um, but I can never quite decide which one. Uh, Overboard with Goldie Hawn and oh, yeah. Kurt Russell. Uh, great romantic comedy. Um, Sullivan's Travels. Um, oh, my goodness. I <laughs> am. I have very, very eclectic taste. That's just so hard to... Uh, I watched part of Mamma Mia yesterday because it was just, it's so silly and fun, but somehow it works. Um, some of those Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare movies when they were, uh, I mean, the way he introduced us to Shakespeare on film, lowbrow, highbrow, that's uh, Terminator, <laughs> yeah. Die Hard. Oh, uh, oh great. Hunt for Red October. I, I, you know, it's like every time, Pitch Perfect, every time that comes on television, <laughs> I, <laughs> I watch it. It's just so much fun. You weren't sick of it uh, at all? or? <laughs> oh, you know, the music is so great that, uh, and I always seem to turn it on towards the end so you get to watch the finals because it's just, it's great. It's really, uh, it's really fun. Um, so if I saw House of Sand and Fog, I'd probably turn it off. Dead Man Walking, I have a really hard time with. You know, I mean, these yeah. things are really good. Tiger House for Liz, if I saw it, I would probably, uh, uh, that one I would watch. Jules and Jim. I mean, it's lots of, I have lots of guilty pleasures. Well, well thank you so much for letting me, letting me interview. Ah, thank you very much. I'd like to thank Lisa for allowing me to interview her. I'd like to thank, of course... The American Cinematers for helping put this together. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>